Hello and welcome to Knowing Nature, the podcast about exploring and engaging with the natural world. I'm your host, Victor. In this podcast, I share experiences, practices, and perspectives on environmental education. This episode, I thought I'd share some ideas for how you might take a cross-curricular, project-based approach to teaching about plants. Starting with the English Year 3 curriculum, I've put together a few ideas for how a science unit on the parts and needs of plants can be expanded on in history and art while working towards a final project in English or language arts. I hope you find it useful. On with the show! My ancestors lived beneath trees. It was dim but rich and moist. The trees would drop their leaves and the worms and other creatures of the earth would bring them below. They would chew and break and rot the leaves until they were soft and our roots could grow through and drink the water held by what was left of the leaves. We sent out runners which searched for patches of light and bare earth where we would have room to grow uncrowded by our kin. If we were lucky, our flowers would be visited by bees, and they would grow into berries dotted with our seeds. One ancestor's berries were red, and the mice and birds saw the berries and ate them, carrying the seeds far away as they flew and scurried and ran. Now, our berries are almost all red. People would come and take our ripe berries too until they got tired of walking to the trees from their homes, and one day people took us from beneath the trees. They dug us up and planted us in bare earth away from trees and grass. Life became bright and hot and thirsty. But people were good to us. They learned to shade the soil with the stems of grass, brought us water when the rains did not come. We had all the light we could want, and our berries could grow sweeter and sweeter. One day, people brought new ancestors. They said they came from far away, crossing mountains and grasslands and a great salt sea. People planted the new ancestors between our rows, and we grew and flowered and ripened our berries. The bees, our old friends, did not care about new or old ancestors. They drank the nectar just the same, carried the pollen just the same. But... As the bees mixed flowers and pollen from ancestors new and old, a curious thing happened. Our berries grew and ripened red, dotted with seeds just the same. But the seeds grew into new plants. They grew into me. I live beneath the sky. I thrive where it is bright and rich and moist. People drop dry grass to shade the earth, and my roots push through the soil to drink water brought by people. I send no runners, though my cousins sometimes still do. For when I am crowded, the people break me apart and plant my kin in new, bare earth. My flowers are visited by bees, though sometimes they are fewer now, and my flowers grow into berries which dwarf those of any of my ancestors. I am a strawberry and my ancestors still grow beneath the trees. That was a rough example of what a final product of this cross-curricular plant project could be. A short story about the history of the strawberry, bringing in a bit of parts of a strawberry plant and their functions. 
Now, I've not been a classroom teacher for quite a long time, but after the last episode where I talked about the challenges of beginning to get more environmental content in the curriculum, I thought it might be useful to think through how I might tackle having a stronger focus on nature while still hitting other curriculum areas. So here's what I came up with for a plant month or so, um, based on the early Key Stage 2, so year 3 curriculum here in the UK. That's around kids age uh, 7 to 8 years old. So in year 3 science here in the UK, when we're talking about plants, we're talking about what a plant needs to live and parts of a plant. So with this, I would tackle it in probably a pretty conventional way. We've got lessons on the parts and needs of plants. Uh, you might, if you're very ambitious, want to set up some experiments to see how plants react to having more or less things like water or light or in different soil types. So you could have students record their setup and any inputs that they have, so how much water they give the plants, for instance. And you might record these observations maybe two or three times a week and that's just enough so that if you are watering the plants um, two or three times a week, that should cover their needs, hopefully. Students can then describe how the plants react and grow to the different conditions that the students have put them under. For those who are really bold, you might have students have several identical setups. So maybe a student is investigating what happens when a plant only gets a little bit of water. They set up four identical plant setups. And then every week, they gently rinse away soil in a bucket and then take a look at their seedling and maybe spread out the roots. They could then press the plant or maybe just take a photo so that at the end of the four weeks, you could have a comparison and you could look at the effects of different amount of water on how the plant grew in terms of did the roots look any different? What were the leaves like? Were they different? And then students can describe the results of the experiment. Some things to consider here is that not everyone in a class needs to do everything. So you could divide the class up into groups and each group investigate one particular factor. The students might still go around and make notes on how other experiments are progressing. So you could almost have like a mini science fair where students circulate and maybe a representative for the group shares their observations of what's happened since the last week, while the other students ask questions or make suggestions about the experiment, ask about how they're taking their measurements, how they're making sure their test is fair. This kind of approach could encourage collaboration. So students from one research group can share their experience to help those of another. So maybe uh, one group is studying the effect of different amounts of light on their plant. And maybe when they go and observe the experiments of another group, they can see some patterns that they recognize from their plant. And so by comparing notes, the group that's studying the amount of light might actually see that, oh, something that the water group is observing might actually, because something in their experimental setup is meaning that some of those seedlings are getting a different amount of light so they can share their experiences. When teaching outdoors, students could be encouraged to look for examples of the same type of plant growing in different conditions. So you might look under bushes, next to paths, in tall grass, in mown grass, because the same species of plant can take very different forms. They react differently to these different growing conditions. So the um, common plantain is a very good example of a very weedy plant that can have very different growth habits in different conditions. So in shaded areas, they can have very large upright leaves. 
Meanwhile, in areas like lawns that get mown regularly or next to paths where they get stepped on a lot, the leaves tend to be smaller and they tend to be pressed flatter down to the ground. Students could also make notes or take photos, draw sketches of different microhabitats to capture what those overall conditions are like in reality. So is the light under a tree, for instance, the same as the amount of light under a shrub? Are there differences in the vegetation on the north or south side of a large rock? You really want to take advantage of being able to examine the rich details which are really only possible to explore in those outdoor spaces. Moving on to art, in Key Stage 2, students are working on creating sketchbooks to record observations and then using their sketchbooks to review and revisit ideas. So in addition to having a science notebook, students could also have a sketchbook where maybe every week they sketch their plant experiment. Um, or they could take a photo of their plant and edit the photo so that it accurately captures the light levels because cameras often uh, compensate for the amount of light that are around so it can be difficult to tell what the actual light level was really like. So by uh, manipulating the photos on a computer to match what the student sees with their own eyes, not only is this developing their modern day digital art skills, but they, they're also capturing a bit more scientific data. Students could also look at different photography styles on a platform like Instagram and look at how photographers can use light to convey things like emotion. You might also compare the effect of having a subject be front, side, or backlit uh, on how that affects the final photo outcome. Or you could have students take one photo of the plant per day and then create like a time-lapse video of, of how their plant grew over the course of the month. Another idea would be to create a plant sculpture using something like maybe crepe paper or crumpled tissue paper for the leaves because crepe and crumpled tissue paper can be a little bit stiffer. They kind of can hold their position a little bit when you um, manipulate them. So the students could create a sculpture of the plant using these materials and then manipulate the tissue paper so they mimic the leaves of the actual plant. So you might pull down gently on crepe paper or smooth out the tissue paper a bit to make the leaves a bit more floppy, uh, to make them look a bit more wilted if, if that's what's happening to their plant. Writing an artist's statement about their work blends together both science and art again because they need to use the parts of a plant language in describing their work. They need to be thoughtful about how their technique captured what was happening to their plant experiment. Now this can be a little bit tricky because you've got to be really clear on what it is that is being assessed at the end here. If the artist statement is being assessed for art, make sure that the criteria are really focused on that. Um, the science content here then is, is really more of an opportunity to reinforce those concepts rather than assess whether they've got them. So if a student doesn't mention every part of a plant, you know, don't hold them against them if the artist statement is, is focused on the techniques that they used instead. So a teacher might ask them to talk about what color choices a student made to reflect the state of the plant. So for instance, a dry plant, the student might represent them with really warm colors because maybe they think it's like hot and dry. Um, or maybe the student feels that the plant is tired and sad. And so they choose to use cool colors to kind of express that. Because again, if we're using these statements to assess their progress in art, we want them to just be a bit freer in expressing their thinking uh, because that's what it's about. It's not about having a right or wrong answer. It's not about assessing their spelling or their grammar. 
Um, and also, an artist statement could be in a different format altogether. It could be written, but it could also just be an audio recording or a video recording. Because again, the artist statement might not be about assessing their writing skills. We want to know about their um, ability to interpret art and we want to know that they can talk about the techniques that they used. When teaching outdoors, consider how much time and space will be available, what habitats are around to explore, is it a wilder or more managed site that you're going to, um, because managed sites in particular, it might be difficult to use for exploration of microhabitats, for example, as they might be really contrived, like in planted gardens, you know, if the grass is very evenly mown everywhere, it can be really difficult to look at um, how grass grows in different conditions because it's going to be very uniform throughout. Same with if you're looking at um, what plants are growing where. You know, again, if it's in a planted garden, those plants aren't growing where they naturally would necessarily. They've been put there by, by the gardener. The constraints of being on a field trip can also be an opportunity to explore different techniques. So bringing a limited range of color pencils or watercolor pencils for the really adventurous, um, that does mean that you've got less to carry, which is great, and it also forces students to experiment with color mixing to match the colors that they encounter. Students could also explore digital photography again to quickly capture scenes if time is a bit more limited. Um, and nowadays that's a bit easier because most devices have some kind of a camera, but even really inexpensive point-and-shoot cameras nowadays are really phenomenal for most purposes. Um, if you are taking this approach, and you're expecting students to capture details, if your students haven't had lots of experience working with digital cameras, I recommend having them bring a piece of paper or maybe a clipboard so they can place behind a subject to help isolate them from the background, because that will tend to help them achieve better results in terms of focus. I mean, most of the time when I've seen kids take um, photos outside, you know, they're more excited about pointing and pressing the button than about whether or not the image is in focus on on what they actually wanted to focus on. So you end up with, you know, a really in focus backdrop and then a really blurry blob in the front foreground, which is what they were trying to take a, a photo of to begin with. So um, in the case of plants, fortunately, they don't move. Generally, you can get closer to them. But um, if you're taking pictures of a plant in a really natural setting, it can be really difficult for a camera to isolate the plant that you actually want it to focus on um, unless you know what you're doing. But again, bringing a piece of paper or a clipboard, put it behind the plant you want to take a picture of and then take the picture. That'll help the camera isolate the, the actual subject. For those working in outdoor education providers, I'd encourage you to develop arts-based options. Many teachers, if they do teach outdoors, primarily use these spaces to teach science or geography. And then, as mentioned before, teachers also look to reduce the amount of materials they need to carry on field trips. So if you don't have an arts-based option on offer, um, this can end up really restricting kids' experience of nature to just those scientific perspectives because teachers will tend to approach the non-guided portion of the visit from that kind of science perspective, or sometimes they'll just have the kids um, wander around, explore the site, which can be good too. But for those classes who need to be a bit more directed in order to make the most of an experience, teachers will tend to have some kind of science activity or worksheet to fill in. Um, if they are doing art, it tends to just be, you know, pencil and paper, do a sketch of stuff that you see. Whereas if you as the 
outdoor education provider offer a session, you know, you can have the materials there so that the classes can do something a little bit more exciting than pencil and paper sketches outdoors. Um, not that there's anything necessarily wrong with those sketches. So for instance, a blended science art session could explore where those two subjects intersect. You could have students um, capture mood by using repetition, uh, by picking a plant and exploring what would be lonely, comfortable, or crowded for that type of plant. And again, you, the students could do this using sketches. So would the situations look the same for a tree as it would for grass? Um, how does this link up with the different parts of the plant, the shape of the plant, and the amount of room that it needs in order to grow? So a lonely or comfortable or crowded tree will probably look really different from grass. You know, you can probably have a lot more grass plants growing closer together and have that plant still be fairly comfortable. Whereas one tree growing all on its own with nothing else near it for a few meters, um, might not actually look lonely. It might look quite comfortable actually, because that's the amount of space that that plant needs in order to grow and be healthy. Moving on to history, in this sort of key stage two period, we're looking at changes from the Stone Age to the Iron Age, and students are looking at making connections and looking at trends over time. So in history, we can learn about how people made use of different kinds of plants, what kinds of tools would they have used, did they use broken or fallen branches, or would they have been able to chop down whole trees? What would people need to do to the landscape in order to grow crops? Probably they would need to clear forested areas. So you could compare the impact that Iron Age peoples had with um, peoples uh, back in the Neolithic or Stone Age cultures. And students can record notes on how people interacted with different types of plants, you know, the trees, the grains, um, the fruit, and then consider would having humans around have helped hurt or changed populations of these different types of plants. Taking this perspective hits all the same learning points, but you've got a bit more of a specific purpose because now what the history unit do is doing is providing background information to inform the big project, which is going to be the next step, writing a picture book, which we're gonna cover in English or language arts. So in year three, students are looking at planning their writing by reading writing in a similar style uh, in order to learn from the structure. And when they're writing narratives, they're looking at developing setting, characters, and plot. So my thought here is that the end goal of this unit might be to write a story from a plant's perspective about what happened when people arrived. So in this unit, students might start by reading books written in a similar style to learn from the format. So on the website, I'll put up a, a list of a few good books that are written from the plant's perspective. Um, some good examples like The Giving Tree uh, by Shel Silverstein and we've got Sequoia by Tony Johnston are in there. Um, and you might compare those with similar books but which aren't written from the plant's perspective. So here I'm thinking of books like The Lorax or The Great Kapok Tree by Lynn Cherry. Uh, these are books where trees and plants are important to the story. The story isn't from the plant's perspective. Next, students can refer to their notes from history to create an outline for a story about a plant. So they might choose a plant to develop as a character. So an oak tree might start as an acorn buried by a squirrel, and it might become worried as it sees other trees being cut down to clear the way for fields as people develop agriculture and Iron Age tools.
Or maybe the oak tree is proud to be homes to animals and parts of the tree form homes for different types of animals. So birds living in the branches, squirrels in a hole left by a broken branch, a fox in a den under the roots. You could even have caterpillars living inside of leaves, those um, leaf mining caterpillars. And then the tree could become sad when it's cut down and taken away uh, because of the impact that that might have on all those animals that used to call it home. But the tree might then become proud again to become part of a home for people. And in illustrations, you could look at um, how Stone Age settlements and houses might have looked compared to Iron Age settlements, houses, and the resources that are used in building those stone versus Iron Age dwellings. You could then revisit the clearing in the forest to look at how new trees grow in the space because of the uh, light opened up by the chopping down of that big mature tree. So again, we're tying together some of the concepts from science with the concepts from history and using it to create the outline of a story in English. So this is quite a big project and it's quite useful to both the teacher and to the students to have the project be broken down into different parts. And part of what I think makes this kind of approach really effective is it means that the work done in other subjects can all contribute to this project. So in this case, you've got students choosing an important or interesting plant from science or history. Then you outline the plot using the developments learned about in history. You can develop the character of the plant and how it might react to events in the story using the observations that you've made in science. So students can peer review the historical events in the story, uh, details of plant biology, and offer constructive suggestions there which again reinforces the learning from those other subjects. Next, students can start writing out the story, start thinking about blocking the text into pages. And this is where working digitally can be a huge benefit because it's much easier to manipulate a piece of text in digital format. That way you're not forcing the students, you know, each draft, is, you're not forcing them to write out that whole story over and over again. I know that's something that I always found really difficult and boring when, when I was in school was that drafting process was always really arduous because, you know, I'd have to rewrite the whole story and it wasn't fun anymore, right? Because it wasn't creative anymore. It was just making copies essentially. So here's, here's where working digitally can be a huge benefit. Then the diagrams that you've done from science, from your experiments, or your sketchbook from art can form the basis for illustrations to be used in the book. Students could decide to do whole new illustrations or scan or photocopy their initial work and then cut it out and place it in a setting which they've worked on separately. Some students will be more impatient and choose to take this route, but hopefully students will be motivated to put a lot of care into their work because they really feel that it's the culmination of all this previous work. And knowing that the book will be added to the library can act as sort of added motivation. Better yet, if there's work from previous year's classes there, you know, storybooks that the that last year's class wrote, that can really act as motivation because they know that their work will be seen by next year's students. Then your last step is putting text and illustrations together into a final piece. And the key here is to set deadlines for each of these different milestones. So you're providing students with some class time to work, but if they don't feel like they're going to make the deadline, they might need to work together with the teacher to come up with a strategy or ask for support. So some students might need to take the work home because they haven't been working effectively in class. Um, maybe they were just being a bit too ambitious with their project and they need to cut it back in some way. 
Or it might be something as simple as needing to talk through writer's block with a friend or a parent or with a teacher. Alternatively, they might want their story to be in a different format. It doesn't have to be a book. It could be a story blog post, in which case you might only need one or two or three pictures instead of, you know, five to ten pictures for for doing a whole picture book. And in a project-based approach, it's really helpful to have many assessments along the way, not only to help give the students some structure to help them meet those deadlines, um, but also it allows you to give them really specific feedback to really support them in the next step of the process. So, you know, mini assessments for this project, you might start with um, having an outline of the plot. You might evaluate the sketches of their ideas for illustrations. A student might produce evidence of giving constructive feedback to another student. So maybe they've actually written uh, feedback notes Then you've got the text of the final book that could be assessed for English to make sure that they've hit all the skills that they need to hit. Uh, And then the final product, you might not assess it at all because you've gotten all the information you need about the student's learning from all of those earlier stages. The other thing is they've put so much hard work into that final product, rather than putting a red circle around a typo or grading the effort out of a hundred, The final product can just be really celebrated. They can share it with their classmates. They can read it to younger students. There could be a library induction ceremony where the librarian officially gives the books the school stamp or a school sticker to officially put them into part of the library collection. So there's a quick outline of how you might take a cross-curricular, project-based approach to learning about plants and the environment. As always, full notes can be found on the Knowing Nature website, which is knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. Also check out the resources section of that page. It's a bit empty at the moment, but I'll gradually be taking the ideas in this episode, filling them out, and putting them up there. Uh, At the moment, though, there is also a little leaf hunting activity with some simple line drawings that I've done. You're free to take and use those as you wish. If there's any topics you'd like me to take a look at in future episodes, let me know. I'm always on the lookout for future episode ideas or pieces of research to share with the environmental education community. You can reach out to me via email at knowingnaturepodcast.gmail.com. You can reach out on Twitter at kn underscore podcast. And we also now have a Facebook page. Just search for Knowing Nature Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.